0: Welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Floral Street, Michelle Feeney. Michelle Feeney has been described as one of the most powerful women in global beauty, and rightly so. Michelle's career began in London in fashion PR in 1983. She soon transitioned into beauty, working with hairstylist Trevor Sorby to launch his brand into Boots, and later worked on the launch of Bumble and Bumble. From there, Michelle was headhunted by the team at Estée Lauder, and after ten interviews, including one with Leonard Lauder himself, was given a senior role with the company. Lauder had hired Michelle at a time when they were beginning to acquire other brands, and in 1994 they tasked Michelle with developing a launch strategy to turn a pot of moisturiser into a global cult product. That moisturiser was creme de la mer. Mission accomplished. In 1998, Estee Lauder acquired MAC Cosmetics and given that Michelle had already proven her ability to turn a great product into a legitimate icon, she became MAC's Vice President of Global Communications, Leading the growth of the brand and launching it into 40 countries. When Michelle took on that role, Mac was a $65 million company. Less than seven years later, it was worth $1 billion. Michelle is also largely responsible for spearheading and bringing mainstream awareness to the Mac AIDS Fund, signing the likes of Elton John and Mary J. Blige to front the fund's campaign. That initiative saw Michelle sit on a board in the United Nations and hand $750,000 over to Kofi Annan. Beyond Estee, Michelle spent four years as the CEO of saint quite literally transforming the way the entire world viewed self-tanning and turning the brand into the market leader. In 2017, Michelle founded Floral Street an award-winning, quintessentially British fine fragrance brand with sustainability and eco-responsibility at its very core. In this conversation, Michelle explains why it's so important to stay open to opportunity rather than having a concrete plan, what the beauty industry can do to ensure it doesn't lose its creativity and what it really takes to turn a product into an icon. you were born and raised in Birmingham and I read that your mother was an Avon lady. So let's start there. What is your very earliest memory of beauty?
1: Well, it wasn't being a baby, but apparently she used to push me around in the pram to do her Avon calls. So, I mean, there must be some some subconscious thing going on there, but my first memory, my actually conscious sort of Fascination with it was my mum. She was a receptionist in one of the top um, hair salons in Birmingham, and she had all these hair pieces. And so it was kind of her transforming herself. It was the 60s, you know, so it was lots of beehives of and transforming herself with these hair pieces and there was a lot of eyeliner going on and products were sparse, actually. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't many, but that's when I became sort of fascinated with this transformational piece of it. Um, You know, about how you could give yourself more hair. I mean, this is the 60s, it's a long time ago. Um, But it was glamorous, actually. Glamour was in, Um, and I I think that was my first real If I I was to look back, that is my first real uh, acknowledgement that there there was beauty.
0: And do you have any early memories of scent more specifically?
1: Yeah, I do actually, more so. I mean, we lived quite an urban life here in in the UK when I was growing up. But um, every year we would go to Ireland to visit my great-grandmother and um, she had quite a rural life. And I just remember the gardenias really specifically um and 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 how it filled the room and i um i think that's my first scent memory um and thank god i got to go you know outside of urban urban areas because birmingham in the you know the 60s particularly wasn't exactly uh you know full of greenery and life but um but as, as life went on into the 70s it became more colorful and more choice and I think that's when beauty became an industry, if you like. I wasn't, you know, I I think we all talk about the beauty industry now and and I don't think it was one for a very, very long time actually.
0: Well, it was kind of the ugly sister of the fashion industry really.
1: Yeah, I suppose so. But don't forget, you know, I was... um, I started life here in 1983 as a fashion show producer. And that was the early 80s was only when Fashion Week in London was invented, if you like. Really? So, really. You see all you young people think, oh, it's been around forever and there's fashion shows all over the world. Really, really, really. It's a new phenomenon. It was, it was basically a very, it was only, there was only Paris that did the runway shows before that. So, so the 80s was when it was this explosion of, you know, popular culture, if you like, of, um, you know, Vivienne Westwood and Marco McLaren and punk and, and, and different people making their own clothes in a, in a really different way. And so the fashion industry has only again become an industry, I would say, in the 90s. Wow. God, well, that's my education done. We'll just we'll wrap today, it up in. Beautiful. Today, yeah. <laughs> I think we're in a very dull moment at the moment, though, as far as um, fashion is concerned. And I I think it's become so much of an industry that it's actually lost its creativity. So that's what I also feel is happening a little bit with beauty, to be honest with you. So we we can talk about that, but but I, I think that's what's happening.
0: Oh, I'm going to pick your brain on that. When you were a child, what did you think that you might be when you grew up?
1: A nurse, actually.
0: Ah, and when did that
1: change? I, I, um, well, I did I did a pre-nursing course with my A-levels and um, you had to go out and actually work in different hospitals and also um, institutions. And, and I found it very hard um, being in some of the institutions I went to and I thought perhaps I'm not quite ready for this. Um, And that's when I didn't go into the nursing direction. And I decided to go and do a degree um, in a very new degree called consumer science, which was textile and food science. So I was also really interested in food. So I sort of as a child, I thought nursing, then I thought maybe I'd become um, like a chef or something. And um, I've probably combined it all in, in what I'm doing now in some weird, weird, strange way. But, um, yeah, I went off in a different direction.
0: I think that makes perfect sense. You have kind of yeah. taken bits and yeah. pieces from all of them. So it was in, if my research serves me, it was in around 1983 that you started working in fashion PR. Yeah. I understand that one of your clients was hairdresser Trevor Sorby and he brought you in-house to work with him and that was when you kind of made the move over to the beauty industry what was it about beauty that you were drawn to do you know
1: what I loved about it I loved I'd done a couple of years in in fashion and amazing is like we were doing shows for Gautier at the early days and we we launched you know the, the, the sort of a lot of the models were only 16 that became supermodels and and I was doing, we'd do everything, it was very glamorous, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. But what I didn't like about it was I wasn't involved in the business side of anything. And, and I think what I realized with beauty and particularly the hair industry at that time was, wow, this has got substance. So my work in, in making something fun, glamorous, Uh, and marketable gets you can measure it you can measure it in how many sales and I I love the intricacies of it and that combining of a bit of glamour a bit of creativity and also some business and that's when I went in-house with Trevor and he was at a pivotal point in his business it it was it was a salon and he did lectures all around the world and he had a, a an American product company so the americans are way ahead you know obviously of of all of us in the rest of the world from a business perspective around beauty and he said let's launch it into the uk and we had a meeting with boots and this is pre-computer pre i had a flip chart that i'd put together
0: i mean (laughs) i still love that I still I sit here taking handwritten notes. That's
1: Yeah, I I do that all the time. But I mean when you're presenting now, you have it on a screen, you know. And it's a not little different. Like <laughs> a big flip chart. However, you know, um but um yeah, so then we got we were the first um professional hair care range to go into Boots, which for those of your listeners who doesn't know it's 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 like the It was the only distribution channel, actually, then for for any kind of um, beauty product, really, to be honest with you. It was boots or boots or some small department store chains, but not not really that big, you know, so it was very important. And that that fast tracked me to understand about, you know, a different aspect of business. So, yeah, it was great.
0: During that time, when your career in beauty was really in its infancy, were there any lessons that you picked up that you find you're still applying to your work now?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, having spent thirty odd years uh, in, in various aspects of, of of beauty, every single every single piece of my life has been put now into my own brand. So I'm I'm a I'm an ideas person, I, I forge ahead, but I'm, I'm always listening, I'm always looking. And I think what, what was great in all of these jobs was I was at the forefront of change. Like there wasn't a hair, a professional hair care industry that was into, into consumer. You know, I was at that change moment, so I was learning. Um, I also worked with a top hairstylist, Eugene Suleiman. And he was the creative director. And I said, look, you should start doing sessions on magazines. I'm going to start booking you. And, you know, so it's about sort of every aspect has taught me something. And then the Trevor Sorby um, episode of my life, I then went to work for Lynn Franks after that, which uh, if you've ever watched Absolutely Fabulous, that's what that series is based
0: on. Have I watched it once? Have I watched it more times than I can count? (laughs) it is the greatest uh, uh, well, show to ever be created Ooh. well
1: Gemma that was that was true life I am not kidding you we that was our life when I first watched it there was no way I could laugh because I was like oh my god this is what we live because French god, is how owned- much were you all drinking oh tons man <laughs> and, uh, you would you would go for lunch but you'd go for lunch you wouldn't come back Heaven. and if you did come back you'd come back for half an hour before you went for drinks in the evening it was co- it was sort of work and life merging together and lots of socializing which which equals um, you know work because we, we also at Lynn Franks we were the first ones to do um, red top and blue which was a big AIDS fundraiser mm. in in London and you know that if you if you were to map out my life every single every single, role I've had or interaction I've had has led to the next interaction I've never ever ever applied for a job in my life
0: amazing so
1: I've just sort of let the world take me where I where I think the universe take me where you know maybe I should go and sometimes maybe where I shouldn't go but in the end should have gone you know I it's quite interesting um, if you live your life in a more open way than a structured way because I think a lot of young people in the world today are are told they should be doing x by y time you know and 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 that just isn't the way life is really so i I think you if you can be stay as open as you possibly can and learn be open to learn and you don't have to know it all in fact we i don't don't, i'm learning now about fragrance you know at, at, at age 57 because i don't i don't know it i haven't lived it all my life you know so i think that's what keeps you excited about what you do and
0: excited about
1: life you
0: know god that resonates so much because i do think as well if you have this very clear set in stone vision of what you want from your life mm-hmm. you can then put the blinders on and then that's it and any other opportunities that can come you know you can't see them in your peripherals you and then you might you be missing out see, on something
1: that's right that's you absolutely summed it up so you you can't see it if it is if it if it appears for you, you can't see it because you're like, no, this is my path. And and similarly, when you run a business, you know, you have to have to be open to see what's coming in. So you might set off, you know, I've never done my own startup. So I, I've, I've had this incredible life, but I've never done anything absolutely on my own from the beginning. And, what, you know, it's so different because you're having to how you, you have to believe so much in it that you're going to make, you're going to be able to sell some of it from the start. You know? yeah. and, um, and, and that, that's hard. But then once you start going, like we are going now, you know, you, you have to stay open to what opportunities might come in. So I can't say, Oh, I'm never going to, you know, Australia, this is a good, good example. So I said, right, we're not doing, we're not doing Australia because it's too far away and it's too, 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 too. too with Flower Street, first person that came in my store was Joe Morgan from Mecca. Of course, she was. One week, one week, I was open one week, and and she said, um, "Oh my God, I love it! I love it! Your compostable packaging. I have to bring you to Australia." And I'm like, "No!" She's <laughs> like, "Yep, you're coming. You're coming." And that was that was my message from the universe to say stop it Michelle stay stay on track to being open because this is you know this is the way to go
0: and that's just Jo as soon as she decides she wants a brand over here that brand is coming over here (laughs) simple (laughs) as that and I was going I ended up coming too
1: you know with it so it's quite it was great you know so that's what I mean I think I think the Trevor Sorby you know then into Lynn Franks which was so much fun but she wow what an incredible woman we were you know there was some guys there but she showed me how to be empowered and empower your ideas as a young female and i know there's a lot of you know demonstrations about you know being heard from all sorts of people around the world at the moment but we can't forget that women you know you were sidelined so so there we had this industry that was beauty and fashion that was saying wow women come on in get to the top be at the top you can do it too and and she liberated us all as young and empowered us as female you know young females to to have big budgets to run I was a director you know I built the beauty department for her at 26 you know only because she said you can you, you know rather than you can't it was you can so you know and then I fell in love um, uh, with um, the, my boyfriend at the time that became the father of my child and he was a record producer and he said oh do you fancy coming to live in New York and I'm like okay so I, I, I literally went without a plan how foolish is that or um, I'm like, ha, 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 ha. there's a lot to be said for uh, blind optimism I think you're right, Gemma, it's totally blind optimism, that's what it was. And um, again, here you go, here is how the thread goes. So I was writing for various publications in the UK, Elle, The Daily Mail, and a hairdressing magazine. And she, because I thought I wanted to become a journalist, and she then, the, the editor of um, the hair magazine, said, can you go and interview Michael Gordon, He's the owner of Bumble and Bumble.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I went to interview him and the next day he called me and he said, look, I've got this, I've got this really good feeling about you. Would you consider being our sort of head of marketing and PR? I mean, hello universe. So by this time I'm broke because I had tried to be a riser and I'm (laughs) like, Oh my God. Again, I do have lots of conversations with the universe. I'm like, okay okay, I get it. I've meant to do this. And I started doing freelance for him um, three days a week from my apartment and, and also in his offices. I couldn't even type and I I'd had to go and buy a typewriter. And, um, and then I said, you've got to do products. You know, we've got to do products. And that's when we started to develop the um, products with Orlando Peter. And I changed the logo. It was a really 1970s triangle with a comb, Bumble and Bumble, when I went there. And I said, you know, we've got to do this as a signature. And then there was an in-house um, creative guy that realised it and we developed it. And um, and that's how it all became.
0: God, just another origin story thrown in there. Why not? I know. Well, I've got, you know, it's just being open mm-hmm.
1: and and doing an opportunity. and And then I built this... I then produced a hair show in the limelight in New York and then the owner of the limelight said to me, I want you to do all, I want you to handle all of my, my PR for this club and I'm opening a, a new one called Club USA. And um I ended up I turned him down so many times and then I I I went into a room and asked for a lot of money and I thought if he says no, then it's gone. And of course he said yeah. So I ended up being heading up I launched Club USA. Palladium the Tunnel Club and that was one of my major clients so it was in the 90s when you can imagine I had the hair you know I had the beauty side I'd done fashion then the nightlife side was where that all collided in New York in the 90s Um, and then I also had a baby in that time so I had my beautiful son and um, and then Estee Lauder knocked on the door
0: Yes. Now, this I would love to hear about. I mean, to be headhunted by Estee Lauder is it's mm-hmm. incredible. I just would love mm-hmm. to hear more about that time and that process.
1: Well, I think they'd seen what I'd done with
0: Bumble, mm-hmm.
1: and the Lauders were really smart. They kept they would ask a lot of the journalists at the time because magazines were king then, and and journalists, beauty journalists who they thought was good. And I literally got this call and said, you know, we know you've got your own company, but would you come and talk to us? And I went I didn't even really know if the truth be known, you know, this was in the nineties, that Estee Lauder was a massive company because you knew Estee Lauder, the brand in Britain, but that's about it really. I didn't know they owned Clinique, Mm. you know, you weren't meant to know as a consumer that they owned Clinique. And they, that's all they had. They had Clinique, Lauder, and Aramis. And, and that was it at that time. So I went and I did 10 interviews, including with Leonard Lauder himself. Um, and then they offered me a big, big job um, as head of communications for prescriptors, which was the hot, hot brand of the time. And I'd become a single mom, and my actual PR company was going really big, but I realized I had to make a decision because if I'd have stayed with my own PR agency, I would have had to be out every night. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I had a child. And also in America, you, know, you, you, have, you need medical insurance and those kinds of things. And, um, and I made a decision to literally, I call it my moving to America to go into a big corporation. Um, and I ended up with an office on the 42nd floor of the General Motors building overlooking Central Park. Oh. And it was, I sort of would call my friends and say, they don't know I'm from Burmio. You know, it was, it was bizarre. Um, but you, you saw America at its best and Lauderdale at its best because they wanted the best person for the job at the time. And they also really valued, um, entre- Leonard said he wanted me for my entrepreneurial spirit. And I did, it was because they were starting to acquire brands yes. and they knew that they'd built this sort of corporation but it had maybe lost a lot of its entrepreneurs along the way because of the way it operated. So I think it was a smart move to get people in who understood popular culture and also could change things a little
0: bit. Well, one of those brands that they brought in not long after they brought you in was Le Maire. So one yeah. of the launches, one of the like launch strategies that you spearheaded was Creme de la Mer, which is, of course, an icon. It's a cult product now. What mm. I would love to know, though, what was so unique about that particular launch? Because, of course, the formula itself is stunning, but there are many moisturisers out there. So how did you turn this product into a legitimate global icon?
1: Okay, well... I was given a pot, literally given a pot of green, and said, see what you can do with this by a a man called Bob Nielsen. Mm -hmm. And there was me and one other person, that was it. And I looked into its history because when I was at Lynn Franks, it was always about looking at where a brand had come from, from its actual core to try and build something new to make it relevant to now, if you like. And it was, you know, a scientist, um, who had developed the cream because of burns mm-hmm. and it had a following of very wealthy women um, and it was using nature in, in it. So it actually had a few elements. And you say there's a lot of moisturizers. There was not as many then. Right. <laughs> and there definitely wasn't any that were that price points. Mm. So I literally built the story, which was a true one you know, about the broth, um, about the scientist. um, And we. I decided it needed a different launch strategy because it had a very wealthy consumer. So I went to Neiman Marcus. And when you launched a product those days in with magazines and things, you would go to Vogue. And and I didn't. I went to Town & Country because that had the wealthy consumer. So I launched it with Town & Country with the New York Times, and with Harper's Bazaar.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, Vogue, and Vogue were pretty pissed off they hadn't got the story. But anyway, that's another story. But there's three of those. And what happened, it all came together and it went like this. And it and it started spiralling into local television. A hundred and, you know, $150 pot of cream and, um, and the storytelling of that. And it became this massive sensation overnight. And I called it my rock star sort of... You know, I'd worked with Malcolm McLaren um, just before this, launching his album. And I thought, let's make it a cult product from the beginning. Let's set it up to be like this. And if you look, really, Bumble and Bumble became a cult. Mm -hmm. This became a cult. You know, I I call myself a cult branding person, really, uh, if you were to describe what I do. So that's that. And at Lauder, they said, oh, gosh, you know, it's really successful and they asked me to be the managing director of the business. So I developed, helped develop all the ancillary products, but I turned it down, which was quite strange in order um, because again, if you were going to be number one in a brand there, you had to give 350% and don't forget, I'm still a single mom, of you course. know, so I, I just thought I'm not ready and that's, when, uh, and that's when they acquired Mac and that's when I went into Mac.
0: So the universe at it again at play again you know? so that was 1998 that they acquired yeah. Mac and you became Mac's vice president global communications just another unbelievable title a role that you held for is it seven years yeah I did yep yeah. seven incredible years, yeah. you were very heavily involved with the MAC AIDS fund and the Viva Glam Initiative sitting on the board for the United Nations. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Handing something to the tune of, I think, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars over. Yeah. It, just yeah. incredible. I understand that the the MAC AIDS fund was founded in nineteen ninety-four, but really yeah. it was kind of just it, it it existed, but it was certainly you that, you know, took it to the mainstream and said hello everyone, this is what we're doing. That's when you've brought on Elton John and Mary J Blige, just two little names, not a big deal. I would love to hear more about this time for obvious reasons. Why was this fund so important to you? And do you think huge brands like MAC have a responsibility to give back in the way that they've done with the AIDS fund?
1: Well, look, I I was raised Catholic and I weirdly had always struggled with success without without a conscience in a way and if you revert you know if you rewind a little bit earlier in the conversation when i worked for lynn franks and we did the aids the, the yeah. you know aids thing and here i was gifted gifted this amazing brand that could you know you couldn't write the script for this for me the two owners originally who founded all this and founded these ideas frank and frank you know it had commercial success it was accessible price points but for fantastic products so it wasn't conning you into buying something it was like genuinely brilliant it had professionalism at its core with with the makeup artist and, and and it had the AIDS fund and because it was canadian you know canadians have they've got they're they're like sort of british on on a different level you know they didn't the, at that time, very humble. We're not, we don't want to tell the story of this Mac AIDS fund. We want to keep it quiet. We don't, we don't want to show off that we're actually doing something good. Mm, too you know? nice. And and I was like, you know, if we don't start telling this story, we won't make more money that won't help the, the you know, the cause. Yeah. So, so I saw it as this amazing, amazing opportunity for me personally to feel good about what I was doing in, in the world. And that I was able to make change and be an activist, which is very inward now. And, and also help the brand grow because everywhere I went and launched 40 countries. And don't forget, I'm not alone here. There was seven of us in the senior management team who were amazing. But this became my passion, the MacAIDS Fund. You know, I was the one that went and knocked on the door of the United Nations and said, are we allowed to give you money? Wow. Because nobody was giving money to Africa. And that was where the big problem with AIDS was. So they were like, come on in, you know, and they, they put me on a, a board for AIDS in Africa. And I was so, you know, one another learning, you know, I sat there said, well, we need to do a video, you know, videos are the thing at the moment. And they kind of laughed, really. They're like, this is Africa. We need singers to go out and tell stories to the villages. And so World Music um, sort of organisation came to play. And Baba Mal, who's an amazing, um, iconic African singer, you know, became involved. So it was about, it taught me about popular culture, where you are in the world is different, you know? And and I think that for me, in, in branding, in, in going global, it's really, really important to understand the culture. And we ended up, I had Mary J Blige perform Stevie Wonder song in, you know, the big, the big room at the UN, um, just with a piano. And I, I, even now, I've got goosebumps. You know, it was, I was, I've had some of those moments in my life where I think it doesn't get better than this, and that was one of them. Um, and and then John Dempsey, who was my boss, um, gave the check to Kofi Annan and him and I was sort of, you know, I called him my corporate husband because we literally went, we went everywhere together. We worked together on on launching Mac around the world and, and it was fashion meets, you know, giving back. And of course, most of the people in the Western world were, who was, who were, you know, hadn't, who AIDS was affecting were the creative arts, you know?
0: Wow. God, you say that that's one of those moments that it can't get better than that. I really can't imagine much topping that. That's incredible. Yeah, but then
1: you end up working with, um, you know, Liza Minnelli and going to see her live and then having dinner with her on a snowy New York night and then thinking, oh my God, it doesn't get better than this either. I (laughs)
0: could actually cry because I had a conversation 24 hours ago with my partner about who our dead or alive top three dinner party guests would be. And Liza was right up there for me oh
1: well there you go you've now you've
0: you've
1: I can tell you what it was like it there was there we go yeah that's another conversation Gemma I think Gosh. but yeah and I mean it was a snowy you know it was a snowy night she just performed and then we went for dinner with her and a vulnerable character actually a very vulnerable character um you know but an amazing iconic character and a, and a lovely spirit actually
0: fun a lot of fun Wow, we'll do a second episode just about dinner with Liza. We might do a whole spin-off podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: Oh, yes, I've got loads of tales because she was with David Guest at them at that time as well.
0: So, God, there'd yeah. be he some was, stories. It was,
1: you know, it would. You'd be sitting with him and he'd be telling you you needed your eyebrows plucking a bit more on something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, oh, I digress. I digress. Well, while we're on your time at Mac, you've mentioned yourself that you launched the brand into 40-plus countries. You also turned it from a $65 million brand into a $1 billion brand in the space of seven years, which I read that and I had to quite literally pick my jaw up off the ground. Mac yeah, famous. But, but that was not alone. I mean, I, I you know,
1: I of get quotes. I just want to, you know, say <laughs> we were a team that took it that far, but you can imagine the... I was a very much part, I was literally going out to all these places and, um, you know, we all had our roles. Jennifer Balbia, one of the best product development people in the, on the planet, you know, was product development. You know, I'd call her from a McQueen, Alexander McQueen show and say, we've got to do white, we've got to do white. And she'd like spin it. On. You know, that was the kind of entrepreneurial team, hardworking team we had out of Lauder that did create this billion-dollar brand, you know. Um, we, we, we always want to put our little finger, but near our, you know, billion dollars. <laughs> <Sorry>. Amazing. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but that's when it changed, basically, Gemma, because um, once you are contributing to a share price in a big way, of a big company, the dynamics change, and you are more scrutinized. You're more looked at. You're, you, you, you have to respond to more data. There's a, there's a bigger, you know. So I, I think share prices. I don't sound like some lefty lunatic here, but I, I, just think share price kind of diminishes creativity a lot of the time. Yeah. I can. And, and and also can diminish change and and positive change so i i i think that's why it's important you know and and of course america america is based on a share price because that's how a lot of people invest and and um pay their pay their their bills you know so it's not for me to judge that but i think i definitely saw that suddenly now it was a billion dollars it was a different animal and for me, what I've seen, you know, in the last 10 years, 15 years, is it being reduced from what it was to something. I'm not saying it's not successful still and the products aren't great, but for me the cult aspect of it is not necessarily there anymore, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've not really thought about it in that way and obviously I'm coming at it from a different angle to you, but I, I understand that because... sort of the saturation of the industry so to speak now as well how do you launch a product and expect it to become this cult classic icon whatever you want to call it when there's so many other things within that category
1: well I think it's about finding your your niche core group of people, wherever you are in the world, and and um, and sticking to not disappointing them, and, and going for the long term, not the short term.
0: I think you found that group of people with Floral Street, definitely. I uh, hope so. I well, I've tried to create that from the beginning, so we haven't, you know, that's what we're doing. So
1: I I think that's all I
0: know how to do. Particularly, it does feel that way, honestly, as a consumer. And I am going to get to Floral Street, I promise. But I would sure. love to also touch on your time as CEO of Saint-Tropez, you were there for four years, 2007 to 2011, which was a really interesting time for tanning, I think, because I imagine in those early days there was still a little bit of that stigma of fake tan delivering this kind of orange finish on the skin and it's only for a very select group of celebrities who perhaps – enjoy that particular finish but by the end of your tenure at Saint-Tropez you you know tanning was a completely different industry and people well, understood well, I, that it I think, a-
1: yeah I, I i think I did that actually I can honestly say I did that because I went in and thought the reason I took the role I'd left Lauder, I'd had my second child um 41 um I'd given up my big job Mm-hmm. I wasn't feeling great. I wasn't feeling great about myself, actually, uh, I'll be honest. And I, I was, um, you know, pretty damn. And I kept getting offered this job in tan, And I was like, I've never had a tan. Oh, I'm not interested in, t- you know, what, what is this? And I went and had a spray tan. And I came out and looked in the mirror and I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. The story's just wrong. You know, this is the ultimate beauty product. It becomes you. You have it done quickly. You don't need to reapply. You look, you feel better. People actually say to you, you look great. Where have you been? So mm-hmm. you're you're boosted. And I'm like, okay, this has a whole self-esteem piece to it. This is an incredible product, um, very quick but it needs rebranding and and a few of the challenges solving, like the smell and stuff like that. So I really just jumped in and banned the word fake in the company and said, we are the fashionable tan. Love it. And then I I solved the smell issue via science, which I'd learned in Lauder was products king, get it right. What are the barriers to entry to this um, product? You know, and it is all oh got. It smells. It stains my sheets. So we started developing. I, I rebranded it all. I did a new visual that was very iconic and beautiful, with a guy and a girl on the end. You know, not not horrible and flashy. And um, it was it was for wags actually. We said here, you know, the the, the wives of the footballers yeah. at the time. Um, Australia had embraced it big time, though. It The only market it was big in when I inherited it was Australia. But there was no tan industry in um, in the States. And I think Australia had because you have a much more outdoors. You were way ahead of the whole world about the damage of skin and cancer.
0: Well, I was about to say, I think around yeah. that time, there was a huge marketing push around put your hat on, put your sunscreen on. Yeah. So the timing makes sense.
1: But you still needed to look good out, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's why. Um, so I, I introduced it to the States because it, it wasn't there. And we built a business. And I, I you know, I, I turned it into a beauty, a, a really nice beauty brand, I think. And and the, to top it all, I um, Kate Moss, I knew and i said would you do this shoot for me so i did this you know her and she used Saint-Tropez. so i did her in the nude on a, on a on a on a mock um, diving board if you have um, access decide- to
0: kate moss you're going to ask her to get nude on a diving board you have to of course <laughs>
1: people would people would ask me is that you in the in the photo I'm like I wish man but anyway and and that that sort of propelled it into a whole other universe um, and then I sold it I sold it to Pisa Cousins um and it was a private equity deal which I had learned to become a, a business a real businesswoman then not just mm. a, a brand person that you know I'd had to go through four years of private equity which a lot of women are scared about you know uh, and I had to learn the lingo and learn how important it is to be on top of the numbers and to be grilled about those every month. and I think thats that brand helped me become a, a business a proper proper CEO
0: business person. Amazing. were you there did you bring James Reid in? was that that time? James, I inherited. He's the love of my life.
1: He gave me the tan, the first tan I had. He was in Debenhams. He worked in a department store in a back room. I kid you not. All the pieces of this story are coming together. Oh, yeah. So I taught him. I made him the spokesperson because if you look at all of the brands I've done, I'm not generally the spokesperson, right? Because it's, I'm not the expert in tanning. So I, I, he was. So I made him an expert, like I'd made all the senior artists role around the world with Mac and and made them, you know, created that senior artist role. Then I did that with him. And then he went on to do his own bloody line and called me and said, I'm really sorry about this. And I'm like, it's fine um but yeah him and Jules Hepworth who does the other um, love of my life Isle of Paradise well both of them work for me so you you should do an interview I taught them how to do that and and this uh, and what Jules has done which is amazing I worked with the Prince's Trust on self-esteem and tanning when I did um, Saint-Tropez and he obviously that resonated with him a lot and he's made that the core of his brand which I think is great you know so how, how great is that for me to have taught a couple of people a way to go and that they've become their own successes
0: and they're two of the greatest human beings on earth it just the, it, a light bulb went off above my head as you were talking and I was like hang on a second those were the years that James was there it all makes sense now yeah. And then Jules started as an intern
1: from college in Nottingham, yes. the were based there, So I took him on there and then he came and worked in London and then he suddenly was loving doing the tanning. So yeah, he's a great, they're both actually great guys and, and Jules, you know, a great force for good and a lovely
0: energy Truly. And, and it's wonderful
1: to see him being successful.
0: Amazing. I've just completely taken this off course, but I just, you know, Not I really, love, love to talk about lovely people. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, we've got to talk Floral Street. The ex- okay. I mean, the whole story is exciting, but, ooh, Floral Street, it's amazing. I understand that the concept came to you in a flash when you are in, in yeah, the Yeah, it did, actually. So,
1: so, so I got, I, Saint-Tropez got bought by a company called Fisa Cousins and they asked me to put a beauty division together. And uh, one of the brands that I inherited was Sanctuary Spa, and it was a spa and it was on Floral Street. And so I was going for a lot of meetings and literally one day I looked up and thought, what a great name for a fragrance brand, Floral Street. And also Covent Garden is where Floral Street is, and it was the Victorian flower market. So I'm immediately oh. sort of my, my, my brand brain is, is whirring. And um, I registered it globally because when you want to have if you've got an idea in a category it's really good to register the name globally in that category it does cost money but nevertheless and then I left that role and I took a gap year at 51 because I'd never better late gap. than never yeah exactly and I really really gave myself a hard time about what was I you know For me, the environment became really important, you know, um, and in that time I stepped out of my industry and watched my own two kids and what they were interested in and where the world was going. I thought, really, do I want to bring some more products into the world? Does the world need any more products? And then I thought, I looked at the fragrance industry and I thought, my God, nobody is doing anything about the packaging or the way that the story is told to the consumer like Mac did with, with makeup, you know? It was, and I thought, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it, and I'm gonna be a voice for change in the fragrance world. And so uh, another person and I, um, we, we sat down, around my dining table, and we started Floor Street. And I had this vision for it to be, what I'd learned from Mac was about accessibility of great product, and product that could be for all, you know, MAC was about all ages, all races, all sexes. And I saw that the fragrance industry was really about pushing you away. And it was, it was sort of, you know, a commercial, a TV commercial where all my clothes fall off and I get the guy or the girl, you know, and, and I just thought modern life is not like that. And we need to know what we're smelling and why we're, we're reacting to the point of when we first started talking today, why am I, why does that fragrance make me feel that way? What what in there is that scent memory that is triggering this beautiful feeling for me? And, and I want to know what's going in there and why is it a fine fragrance? So, I I put all these elements into Floral Street, and two and a two and three quarter years ago, opened the doors to the first store. So there we are. We're
0: on we're on our Floral Street journey. Oh, amazing. I read that it took around. 18 months from that moment when the idea hit you through to the launch in 2017, yeah. what sort of practical steps are you taking during those 18 months? How are you physically, you obviously already had the name, but how are you physically building the brand, deciding what you're going to launch with, even settling on the packaging and so forth?
1: Well, I did, I, I work very visually. I'm not a nose. I don't pretend to be a nose, although I now know a lot more about, you know, obviously smell in general um but um i work visually so i did mood boards of how i wanted the brand to be and it's this modern um consumer that was you know multi uh sort of multi-race multi multi multi-spirit if you like and and i i ended up with six mood muses that were literally that so you would see I did a whole, I did whole mood boards of the mood muses. And then I got introduced to Robert A., who Dura and is the main um, nose. And what I found out about Robert A. is they are the leaders in natural ingredients in the world. So it all started to piece together that they were, you know, if I was going to do this brand, it had to be sustainability from ingredients all the way through to packaging. yeah. And then I've got a great little um, creative team where she is able to take what's in my head and and visualize it. And we started working with her. And then we made the pulp box with a British company here. And again, it was like my knocking on the door of the United Nations. We knocked on their door and said, you know, have you ever done a, a pulp box for a beauty company? And they're like, no, but we will. You know, so it was it was just this organic Once you kick off an idea and you have, you know, for me, once I, you know, this organic process of creating, it's not one person. You don't sit there one day and go, I've got it. I know the bottle. I know the box. I know, you know, it is a process of creativity, which I learned really from the 80s in London, you know, working with fashion and, you know, that you you're not supposed to do it all yourself. You're supposed to put a great group of people together to make it happen. And I think the nineties and the early twenties have been about one leader that does it all, you know, and it's just simply not like that really. So I think, I think we're coming into this age of collaborative process and I'm hoping that's what I've created with Florstreet. Street. And I'm not afraid to say, I'm not the nose here. Jerome is we work together. So I give him the mood boards and the, and the ideas. And he comes up with this amazing, amazing fragrance that matches that, that mood.
0: Well, I wanted to ask about Jerome because he is a genius. He's been mentioned on this podcast before and his work is just mind-blowing. Can you talk me through that process? You've mentioned mood boards. Is that what's happening? You're putting together a mood board of, okay, this is what I want the next fragrance to be. Yep. Let's yep. do it.
1: So with Arizona Bloom, I, who, that's just launched there in Australia, mm. but I had... Um, I was flying. I'd just come back from Australia. I'd, I'd, I'd been there to launch um, Floral Street and I'd flown to various cities and to New Zealand. And then I came back and had a meeting in San Francisco with Sephora. And then I was flying from there to New York. So I've been on the road for a long, long time here. And I flew over the desert and I'm flipping through magazines. I'm still quite a visually touchy-feely person and I thought wow there's a lot of sort of cowgirlish kind of you know fashion coming through and I thought, let's do urban cowgirls a sense of freedom so by the time I've got back to the UK I've got the next mood board and then I call him and I said I want this and then I visited the Atacama Desert which is the driest desert in the world in Chile Wow. and I'm walking on salt flats and I'm like, okay, this is it. This is it. And the world is sort of changing. I'm feeling that zeitgeist. And he ends up taking all those ideas and making it, I think, one of the best fragrances we've done. And it's got salt, salted musks in it, you know, to give it that sort of second skin feel. He just nailed it, you know. He just I'm took obsessed what, with it. Yeah, my head – and, and made it into this iconic, I, I think that's an iconic fragrance, you know, for us. And that really came from, you know, my vision with his vision merging. And I think it's like when you have the perfect partner in life, you know, We, we he really is able to take his skill and, and just translate it into fragrance. So... I, we adore him. We adore him. We, he's the only person we work with. Um, We have a lot of fun with him and um, I've got to spend before all of this happened. I did get to spend, I went to the Rose Harvest with him in grass and and he showed us all there. And then he came to London when we launched um, Electric Rhubarb at, at the Chelsea Plough Show.
0: Um, so it is it's it's a professional love affair, I think, really. Yep. It is so Urban Cowgirl, Arizona yes. Bloom. Oh, I heard you say that the other week and I was straight away like, ooh, this sounds like a bit of me. It is heaven. It is sexy as hell, but not yeah. in an intimidating way. I feel like people think of sexy fragrances and it's just heady and a lot, but this is just delicious.
1: It's modern. It's so modern because yeah. it's, got that, I, I talk about this high, high, oct- you know, this high altitude, you can, it lifts, it gives you a natural high basically. Mm. And and I think, you know, we did floral street. I, 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 I created this for you, for, for us, for me, not for me trying to be attractive to somebody else. It's, you know, if I want to feel, girly, girly, but amazing. It's, you know, it, it, it's Wonderland Peony. And if you, if you were to meet me and say, you wouldn't put me with Wonderland Peony, but it is another incredible fragrance that works with you, you know? So, and then I, other days I want to be, but, but this Arizona Bloom, I, I think it's just a really, really special fragrance, actually really special.
0: Like nothing else you smell, really, probably. Correct. Absolutely. Yep. In recent years, we've seen a really big rise in both the prominence and the popularity of niche fragrance houses. Why yeah. do you think it is that consumers are really celebrating these brands and investing in smaller batch-made fragrances?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, I think because the consumer, you and I, have become much more confident about making choices for themselves. Mm. They don't want to be told that this is the fragrance of the moment, and you have to have it, and you have to smell like everybody. You know, I think it's that. It's choice. Um, it's also I, I talk about this a lot, but you know, we are connoisseurs of things now. We're connoisseurs of chocolate and coffee, um, you know, gin, wine, all sorts of things generally in the food genre. Um, why not become a connoisseur of fragrance? So I think people have, you know, that's what another thing we play on with our scent school here is, you know, let's teach you what you're smelling and why. And I think the niche allows the consumer to experiment and own a wardrobe of fragrances that that fits with how they're dressing, what their mood is, and I just think it's a movement now that is going away. And I think the iconic one fragrance advertised the hell out of on TV. That's the other thing. You haven't got a, nobody sits and watches TV anymore. So you, how do you t- how do you do that marketing of one fragrance? Um, so I think for for me, it's about how niche. And also delivers you the expert. Yeah. So we like we like the Pat McGrath, you know. We like the Charlotte Tilbury. We like the expert behind the brands because we trust it more. And I think when you yeah. have a niche fragrance, um, you know, the, that you know has been created by a, a Jerome. You know you can trust it because he is an expert. So I think you've got a few things going on in the industry. Um, to, but 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 definitely is its choice. It's
0: expression, it's expertise, those things. You have mentioned the packaging and I think yes. it's important we spend a little bit more time on that because it's, it you know, it is kind of a cornerstone of the brand and what you're doing. Your commitment to sustainability is really, really incredible. Can you talk mm-hmm. us through those sustainability initiatives in a little bit more detail? And am I right in saying that you can grow seeds in the packaging yeah
1: sure it's compostable yeah yeah so you can go so again it's this whole it's not just me going okay we're we're going to do recyclable or compostable packaging it's from the heart of the brand how do we look at the ingredients so robert A, they use australian sandalwood which is sustainably grown and sourced sandalwood from other parts of the world isn't so it might be cheaper, but they're overharvesting it and overproducing it. Everything that, that Robert say put into our ingredients into our fragrances that are natural or grown, they look after the community of people. So for instance, jasmine has a harvest time, and then it isn't there. You don't harvest it all year long, but they ensure that that community has schools and is paid for the whole year. So they don't just go in and say, let's have your jasmine and see you next year. So so, so look after that. You know, in Haiti, the vetiver, after the earthquake there, the vetiver, it's such a, a gnarly kind of root. It actually helps keep the land together. So they helped rebuild parts of Haiti because of the vetiver. So I know that every little natural thing that is in our bottles, it comes from a good place you know, where the communities looked after. So that's step one. Step two is, you know, how you put all that together. We, we work with a British company right now to pull all that together so we can visit them. And then it was the packaging. And as I, I just spoke about, I wanted to do something that was totally compostable, not just recyclable or reusable is, is the best idea. Mm. And there's, there's certain challenges that within any industry that if you know, there's certain things we can't do and we're working towards, but every single aspect we can, we are doing. And that package, when I created that, my husband was like, what are you doing that for? Nobody's going to want that. And I'm like, trust me, trust me, they will. So uh, we think through every element of what we're doing um, in order to make it recyclable, reusable all compostable and all sustainably sourced and then the other thing is we are vegan and have shouted Mm. about that since the beginning so although it doesn't mean you have to be vegan to use it you know the 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 other thing i wanted to do was create something absolutely beautiful that ticked all those boxes um and each year we're offsetting our our packaging is woodland trust which means we offset you know, the, the, the actual card. So if you get a little tester, even that is 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 um, Woodland Trust. So literally every single aspect, we sit around this table as a little small team and we say, do we bring this out? If we do bring it out, how will it contribute to the environment?
0: I think that also answers what we were just talking about before, why consumers are favouring niche brands now, because you're able to look at every single element of that supply chain, which I know talking about supply chains is like not a sexy thing, but it's important now and people care about it.
1: Oh, it's really important. You're kidding me. You know, you want to know where you're Australia have been ahead of the game on this. They really have for a very long time, you know, and you've had some amazing brands come out of Australia because of that and still continue to. So, you know, my inspiration comes from smaller brands that are doing it differently People that have the courage of their conviction to step forward. You know, I mean, we've grown this brand and it's doing really well, and it's because I've got the courage of my convictions. And I'll I'll watch other people take elements of what we're doing and try to weave it into the, you know. But I've just got to keep on talking to people that want to want to listen to us, really, you know. But creating beautiful things that, you know, our fragrances are amazing and beautiful they come in a simple box but they are complex fine fragrance at an affordable price and you know that's what mac taught me just because something is exquisite and and really can do the professional job doesn't mean it it can't be affordable you
0: know Mm -hmm. i we've touched on a few little bits and pieces in here but i want to I want to do it properly. You've been a part of the global beauty industry for something Mm -hmm. like 37 years now. Over that time, I'm sure there's a lot, but we'll just go for a few. What have been the biggest changes you have seen within the beauty industry?
1: I think,
0: okay, China opening up. When when
1: I launched MAC into China, um, literally women didn't almost know how to put, lipstick on you know they haven't really? had not yeah, had yeah 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 makeup application was um you know it wasn't a widely understood you imagine you've had years and years and years when you just yeah. haven't had accessibility to products so so that um so china opening up with this whole new marketplace of uh, you know that that that's huge i think i feel now there's too many cosmetic products I think it's eating itself alive, actually, right now. Um, and this whole influencer marketing, you know, I I think it's great on some levels, but on other levels, it's it's making people experts that aren't experts. So what comes with some, you know, so. I I don't think, I think there's obviously change for good in there in that it's breaking down the barriers in the fact that, you know, it's not relying upon six beauty journalists around the world to, to, you know, tell you what your fate is. And, and it's giving people a little business to run out of their, you know, so I think that's all really positive stuff. But this digital marketing obviously is a big change because you have to change the way you connect with the consumer um China opening up is a whole different ball game because the world has become bigger, so the industry is wider. And then I think um, and, and, and with the, the the rise of the influencer has lessened the you know I would have signed Mary J. Blige to be the Viva Glam spokesperson, but maybe I'm I i would not be signing her now. So 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 I think I think things have changed as influence. But it is this um, I think it's and I think it's become an indus- a global industry. So it wasn't a global yeah. industry. And then what what's quite interesting is everything is cyclical. So when I moved to London in nineteen eighty three, Neil's Yard was this tiny brand in the in in Covent Garden and it was, you know, vegan and sustainable at the very heart. And, you know, there you go almost forty years on, it's fashionable. So I, I think you know don't good ideas are good ideas and a good position and what you believe in if you can continue to evolve how you market that good idea to the world I think you know you'll be okay and and I think China opening up gives us a big challenge in the in the industry to how we market and what makes me a little bit sad is that you know brands have just gone in and sell 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 rather than going how can we culturally make change in the world right now via what we're doing how can we put our sustainability foot forward for this new market you know
0: so what changes do you think we can expect to see from the industry over the next couple of years
1: well I'm not in I'm not at the heart of any uh, big company right now um, and I haven't been for a number of years so that, so that I, I'm hoping you're going to see a whole change in the way I'm hoping that the world would move much more towards, um, products being made on demand of the consumer. So not producing 3 million bottles of shampoo, but you know, Gemma, what's your hair like? okay, I'm going to mix this shampoo and get it sent to you and it's, and it's yours. And you don't have to go and buy lots of recyclable bottles. It would come to you specifically. So I, am I'm hoping there's going to be a big element of that come through. And, and if I was able to do that right now for this brand, I mean, I'm hoping it's, I'm, I really want to build floral street into this bigger, bigger, bigger beauty brand that has that kind of approach at its heart where, i i'm i'm supplying something to you directly because it makes sense for the world and i'm not just producing you know 50 million of something and hoping i can sell it then and then then you have to deal with the recyclability of the bottle or not you know so i'm hoping the industry is going to tailor make things a lot more and supply things like that but then that that depends on production. So, so you talked about supply chain, which sounds boring, but it's it's the key to everything because, absolutely, you know, if, you know, if a factory can handle that, making it for you, then then we can do that.
0: I think you might be right there. I hope that that's, you know, a direction we're kind of going in.
1: But I think we all want to. I think it's widened. There's a lot of males. I think we want to smell good. That won't go away. I think the real touch feel which seems counterintuitive to what I've just said, but we more and more and more in an age when things are becoming more digital, we more and more are enjoying the pleasures of being human. And that is smell Mm -hmm. and texture uh, and feeling good, you know, about ourselves. And I think the beauty industry, you know, has to stick to those principles that it's about the human in here, you know, and And those beautiful sensual parts of us that we we want to feel good about.
0: It's the whole reason I've still been wearing fragrance every day in lockdown. It's the oh, biggest well, yeah. fragrance and false tan are my two biggest mood boosters. <laughs> it's my partner, true right? my partner was like why are you tanning gem you're not going anywhere and i was like i want to feel good <laughs> sorry exactly. for wanting to be happy
1: no exactly it's about that's what i mean it's about you i could you know the whole of lockdown every morning for me it was about um it was about um rhubarb electric rhubarb because it it, it was uplifting me we hadn't launched arizona bloom yet and, and then in the evening, I would get dressed for dinner still and, and put on a different fragrance like Black Lotus and have a nice glass of wine and creating my own universe from my beauty products. So I, I didn't do the tanning because I need I need a James Reader or somebody to do that for me, I must say. But, um, but I think it is, and, and you've knocked the nail on the head there. You know, when you create brands now, it has to have, the individual at the heart of this and the how do i i make how do i make myself feel you know and if that is your tan or your luxurious moisturizer or your incredible fragrance you know and and creating that mood and, and i tell you something when we're on zoom all day long as well and you, i've never looked at myself so much So so I'm now, you know, my lipstick, so does that one look good? And I'm not, I would have just sort of shoved it on in the morning, but now I'm seeing what I look like more and more and more. So that becomes the look, the look of self becomes really important. So products again are key to that.
0: You know. My final question, Michelle, what is next for Floral Street? Well, we're about to launch something here,
1: um, which will it's 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 to do with scent school in a digital domain mm-hmm. and i'm hoping we haven't spoken to the to make it about i'm hoping we can launch it with you guys so, but um we're doing that so i'm taking i'm taking fragrance into another world um very accessibly and then beyond that um we are doing due to lockdown as well and in the inspiration of how our homes smell we're going to do we're going to launch a lot more home product next year
0: amazing
1: uh and then beyond that i'm looking as as you probably you know i i do want to eventually do other types of products in the floral street realm because i think the name is is uplifting and and nature inspiring and i think it's about
0: <clears throat> bringing that into other products that was Michelle Feeney, founder of Floral Street, which you can find on Instagram at floralstreet underscore. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at watts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.